0: Welcome, you're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, every time I think we've reached the pinnacle of pandemic turmoil and chaos and stress, another unexpected development occurs and the pressure and the turmoil rises another notch or two. Every time I think the pain inflicted by this pandemic and the pain inflicted by the general brokenness and cursedness of this world, every time I think it can't get any more, can't get any greater, deeper heartache and more intense suffering appears in someone's life. Fires, evacuations, COVID infections, COVID deaths, the heartache that we read about and heard about in Afghanistan recently, the hurricane that as we speak, is bearing down in the southeast part of our country. And woven throughout all of these difficulties and issues and tension points and pressure points are unprecedented levels of anger and fear. People across the spectrum find themselves afraid and mad. I like the simple point of the video we just watched. It's safer or it's smarter to travel in groups. It's smarter to do life with others. It's a wonderful picture of the church. It gives us a wonderful image of what church is, what church is supposed to be. I love that, just that little idea, riding the bus together, going somewhere, not on our own, but going together, riding the bus together, traveling together. It's smarter to navigate life's chaos and pressures and turmoil linked with others who are seeking Jesus along with us, standing together, taking on the many challenges we face together, and doing it all in the power and in the presence of God's Spirit. And yet, what seems to be increasingly the case, and I share this based on my own first-hand observations I say this based on conversations I have regularly with other pastors. And I say this from insights that I've read from those who study these things and know these things far more than I do. What seems to increasingly be the case is that the pressures and the chaos of the pandemic and all of the issues it has exposed, mixed with what I'll call political idolatry, is dividing the Christian church in our nation. It's fracturing the church. We've talked about this before, that there are times in history where one can sense the fragility of the church, where it feels vulnerable to what's happening. This is something that people across the spectrum are saying these days. The church in America is fragile. It's feeling the pressure of all that's gone on for the last 18 months. Or we can say it this way based on This video, the penguins are in it for themselves instead of for each other. And I know I'm speaking in broad generalizations here. I'm probably exaggerating to make the point. Not everybody fits into this bucket and I certainly don't exempt myself from this indictment. But it feels like the pressures and the strains of the last 18 months have exposed an embedded self-orientation in many who claim to be Christian. And I get that we're all in the process of dying to self. We're all in the process of seeking to be more of who God wants us to be, and for that to happen, the self has to increasingly and continuously die. I get that, but this seems different. The pressures of the pandemic have brought out a deeper and different kind of self-orientation, within the Christian community. Now, it gets disguised, usually, behind more sophisticated ideas or fancy phrases. But concern for self, when you scrape away at it, concern for self, it seems to me, remains at the root of this. We want things to be the way we want. We're devoted to our own agendas. We are certain about our opinions on X, Y, or Z. And anyone who doesn't agree with our opinion is the enemy or they're insane. We're inflexible in our preferences. We're determined to assert our rights and claim our benefits with little regard for how our choices might impact other people. And even less regard for whether our choices are consistent with the way of Jesus. Every penguin for themselves instead of for each other. Now, our lane as one local church in this town is not to take on or even address the entire problems that are in this world, all the problems in this world. Our lane as one local church is to keep reminding each other of the better and beautiful way of Jesus, that we are to live out in the daily life that we have, and in the midst of the messes like we are currently in. Jesus is king is the wide-sweeping arc that encompasses every aspect of a Christ follower's life. If you just drew the ark over one's life and you put on top of the ark, Jesus is king. A Christian, a follower of Christ is somebody who says, this is how I'm going to live. Jesus is king, and I'm going to live under this reality. So that everything in my life, every decision, every instinct, every word, everything I want to learn how to live it under this reality that Jesus is king. And you know, and I know, we have to constantly revisit this idea because it fades. Because we're human. Jesus is king. And we are his follower. And this simple idea, this banner that flies over the life of a Christian is supposed to shape and direct our choices, our actions, our reactions, and our responses to the chaos erupting around us these days. We seek to live the way Jesus would live if he were wearing our shoes right now, today, facing what we're facing. That is the desire of the Christ follower. And we do this because we believe his way is better than our way and better than any way, and his way is actually beautiful, and his way can actually change this world. But the world has to see the beauty of the Jesus way, and the only way for the world to see it is through the lives and reactions and responses of Jesus' people. That's how it works. So when the pressure comes and the chaos comes, the whole idea is for the people of God to live out an alternative to what everybody else is doing, to demonstrate the fact that Jesus is indeed king, even in the midst of this mess. But again, under stress and under chaos, as you well know, our responses and our reactions and our attitudes reveal who or what has actually discipled us. And from my admittedly limited view, I'm not saying this as some sort of expert or someone who has the whole thing in perspective, but from my limited view, what's on my mind, if you will, is that when I scan the Christian community these days, try to step back and see the bigger picture of what's going on. And when I listen to my friends who are pastors leading churches. And when I read the insights of those who I know know more about this than I do, I see far too many Christians whose primary discipler is their favorite news station or their favorite podcaster or Facebook friend. And I wonder if all the noise from these sources has nearly silenced the voice and the wisdom of Jesus. And as I mentioned, all this is on my mind today as we wrap up this summer series that we're calling What's On Your Mind. In our scripture reading from Romans 12, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in the city of Rome, and this date is actually significant for today's purposes. He wrote this somewhere around 56 AD. So about 20 or 25 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And Paul, in the passage we read, is just pouring out this stream of consciousness. And the theme of this passage, it comes up over and over again. It's stated in big picture, and it's fleshed out in the details. The overriding theme is the supreme importance of love. And I can't think of anything simpler or wiser for us today to consider given that we are living in the midst of unprecedented mess. In the midst of all this, followers of Christ are called to love. Love God, love each other, and even so, as Paul emphasizes, we are to love those who have wronged us, who have harmed us, or those we consider to be our enemies. This whole passage is a little bit about vertical love, our love of God, mostly about horizontal love, our love of others. And I want to focus on this horizontal piece today, this idea of loving one another as followers of Christ within the church and loving those outside, even those who have harmed us in some way. So let's talk about the rising tension between good and evil. Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, you may have caught this, but it's bookended by this good and evil tension. The first verse, verse 9, says, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. That's the first verse. Verse 21 is the last verse. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So verse 21, the last verse, actually summarizes everything I'm trying to say today, which is overcome evil with good. Overcome evil by manifesting the goodness of love. You know, it can be discouraging. I'm sure you've experienced this. I know I have. It can be discouraging to just look around, to listen, to see all the chaos unfolding. I mean, you walked out the door this morning and breathed in all this smoky air. You're still breathing it in inside for some reason. It's gotten in here as well. But the smoky air, it just takes kind of the fun away. Think of those in our church who've suffered deeply in the past few weeks because of COVID. Many of you know we had a family lose somebody uh, a couple weeks ago because of COVID. Think of the people displaced in our own congregation because of these fires. We have some. They had to pack up. They had to evacuate. When we just think about those things, it's heavy enough. Now go off to Afghanistan and think about what happened in Afghanistan. Think about what's happening right now in Louisiana, In the southeast part of our state, someone came up to me after the first service and told me that a relative of theirs decided to stay put during this hurricane and is right now at the present laying on the floor of their bathroom hoping that they survive this thing. Now you just take all that in and it weighs on one's soul, does it not? So I think it is important for us to remember now and then that the Bible tells us way back at the beginning of it that we live in a cursed world. We live in a world inflicted with sin, with evil, and with wrong. That's not said to to, make us feel bad. It's said to give perspective. The chaos and the turmoil in our world today are actually manifestations, expressions of the curse that God says is on this earth back in Genesis chapter 3. So Jesus has come into the world, and through his life, death, and resurrection, his kingdom has broken out in this world. It's begun, we might say. He demonstrated his power over the curse. He healed many who were sick. He set imprisoned souls free. He conquered death in his resurrection. So the days of the curse are indeed numbered. But until he comes again, to make all things finally and completely new and right, there will always be this tension, this struggle between good and evil, this battle that seems to wage on every day. And the people of God are locked in this struggle just like everyone else. And yet in the midst of it, as that battle wages around us, as we're in the midst of the mess, we as the people of God are called to love. Ephesians chapter 6 12, the writer of this book sort of gives us a picture of the cosmic battle that's unfolding. He writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So, what does all that mean? What it means is, is that when we look at the world and we think about what's going on and we examine and stare into the mess of what's happening in our own lives or with the fires or over in Afghanistan or with hurricanes or with COVID, when we look at all that, what we need to recognize is that there's far more going on than meets the eye. There are things happening in the invisible realm where evil and good are battling each other. and That is indeed part of the reality of this universe. But in one of his more memorable Romans writings, the Apostle Paul takes this big sort of concept that's a little bit out there and he brings it down to everyday life, to the personal level where you and I live. He says in Romans 7 verse 21, he writes, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, he says evil is right there with me. Now this is the Apostle Paul talking. This is the Apostle Paul trying to walk out his faith in real life. And he confesses, even though I want to do good, evil is right there. It's right there with me. It's right there tempting me. There's always this struggle that's going on within. So this tension with good and evil is not just a theory of cosmic forces that are at odds with each other somewhere out there. This tension, as you probably know, is experienced in us in all sorts of everyday life situations. I mean, who of us cannot relate to Paul's words here in Romans 7? I want to do good, but evil is right there with me. Now, that evil is not always obvious. It's not always one of the big things we immediately think of when we think, oh, that's evil. Sometimes it shows up in attitudes. Sometimes it shows up in chronic selfishness. Sometimes it shows up in this unrelenting judgment of other people when they don't do what we think they should do. It shows up, evil shows up when there's discord between the people of God. Divisions and disunity. And here's the point. This is all churning in the Roman church when Paul wrote to them and urged them to love one another and to love their enemies. This is the context in which they would have heard this. There might have been five or so house churches scattered throughout the city of Rome. And if you put all those house churches together, you had the Roman church. But again, scattered around five or so in the city of Rome, meeting in homes. And these congregations were a mixture of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. So for the Jewish Christians, the Old Testament had been the driving force of their lives, and they didn't just drop this when they became followers of Jesus. They had to rethink, what's the role of the law now? What's the role of the prophets? What about all these traditions that have been downloaded into me over the years? What about these rituals that we engage in? How does all that play out in light of Jesus? That would have been the journey of the Jewish Christians in these Roman church. But the Gentile Christians didn't have the Old Testament as a foundation. In fact, the Gentile Christians probably had some pagan religious practices as their foundation. So they could have had a religion that said, you know what? Have sex with whomever you want, whenever you want. It doesn't matter. Or unrestrained pleasure is what the the divine want for you. Or some other self-satisfying pursuit had likely been the foundational norm for Gentile Christians. So you know where this is heading. You've got Jewish and Gentile Christians in the same church, and they've got different ideas, and they've got different opinions about just about everything. What foods can we eat? What type of person was a good person? What pleasures were acceptable to God? Which ones weren't? And this is all being played out in the context of a church where you had differences of opinion, and you had mounting tensions. In the year 49 AD, remember the book was written in 54, or 55, in 49, 56, whatever I said, in 49 AD, the Roman emperor comes along, and he expels all of the Jews out of the city of Rome. Christian Jews, Orthodox Jews, kicks them all out of the city. So they all leave. Then they come back in 54 AD after that Roman emperor died. And when these Jewish Christians came back into the city of Rome, they reengaged in the house churches that for several years now, five or so, had been led by these Gentile Christians. You see where this is going. You can imagine the tension, the turmoil, the differences of opinion, the fractures, the divisions, the fragility. Here are people for whom... Jesus is king and yet they're at this with each other. Kind of sounds a little bit familiar to me. And again, what I'm suggesting is this kind of tension and friction and fracture and fragility is evidence of the brokenness of the world infecting the church. One can hardly find a letter in the New Testament that doesn't have significant teaching on how people of faith are to be together in their differences. Because those differences can divide and damage the witness of the church, or those differences can actually unite and empower the witness of the church. And the similarities to the present context we are in, to me, are eerie. So it is into this fragmented, fragile Splintering context that Paul writes the words from our scripture reading and says to them and says to us love must be genuine. Be devoted to one another in love like a healthy family is. Honor one another above yourselves. Practice hospitality. Live in harmony with one another. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So all that adds up to this. Love is to be the distinguishing mark of Jesus' people. I want to say it again. Love is to be the distinguishing mark of Jesus' people. If a person calls themselves a Christ follower, or if a person calls themselves a Christian, or if a church... Has the label Christian in front of it. Love is supposed to be the distinguishing mark of those individuals and of that group. Love for each other within the church and love for enemies. Those who persecute, those who harm, those who attack. Are you nuts? You're thinking, here's what it means. It means love the way that Jesus teaches us to love means we love the killer whales in our lives. It means we love the anteaters. We love the seagulls. All throughout the New Testament, over and over and over again, we find this simple, but these days, radical teaching. Love God. Love one another. Love your enemies. Jesus told his disciples just prior to his arrest and death in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Love is the premier character quality Christ followers and churches are to manifest. Love is to be our primary response then to the turmoil and the chaos and the stress of these days in which we are living. If Christ frames our lives, if he is the wide arc that becomes the tent under which we live hear this as clearly as I can say it. Our first priority is to love. So, loving others is more important than getting what we want. Loving others is more important than asserting our rights. Loving others is more important than claiming. Our benefits. And I realize love may sound fluffy to some of us, may seem like a lofty idea without much street cred in everyday reality. It may seem like religious hot air. I appreciate those critiques, but loving others is to be the primary attitude, posture, and action of Christian people, period. As Jesus said, by this, by this radical love, Everyone will know, oh, that reminds me of that guy, Jesus. That's the way it's supposed to be. So Paul says in verse 10, be devoted to each other, be devoted to one another in love. And he uses the word for love here, Philadelphia, brotherly love, meaning he's picking the word for love here that would have evoked in the minds of those who heard it, it would have evoked the image of family in people's minds. He's calling the church then to love each other like a healthy family loves each other. Commitment. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Celebrate with those who celebrate. Hurt with those who are hurting. Mourn with those who are mourning. Stay in it. Stay together. Stay on the iceberg. Run back to help when the anteater's attacking somebody. Band together. When the seagull is diving, stay in it, work through things. See, we are to give each other the love Jesus gave to us, the love he demonstrated. He's the model. He's the example. The way he loved is the way we are to love. So let these adjectives that describe Jesus's love just sort of land on us and start to ripple out into the practicalities of what we're dealing with in everyday life these days. Just descriptions of Jesus' love that we are to incarnate in the midst of the mess we are living. Selflessness, sacrificial, other centered. The phrase that's been bouncing in my brain all week is you first. Think about that right smack in the midst of all the noise, all the opinions, all the debates. You first. See, this kind of love is a wildly radical response. It is completely against the grain. And it may seem elementary, but especially in days like these where people are driven by the self. Christian people are driven by the self. Love that instead orients around the other is indescribably profound and powerful. I mentioned the Roman church who received Paul's letter was dealing with differences of opinion about a wide range of issues. There was tension. There was conflict. There was disagreement. There was judgment. And when I think about that, I think about today and what the American church is dealing with. In addition, this Roman church was dealing with ever increasing hostilities, from the roman government and in these verses paul reminds them and he reminds us of the way of jesus in the midst of the mess and the chaos and the tension and the stress here's what he says hear it again be devoted to one another in love like a healthy family bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not take revenge. Overcome evil with good. The next chapter, Romans 13. He falls back into the stream of consciousness about the priority of love. And one of the things he says in Romans 13.10, love does no harm to a neighbor. Just let that ripple out into the world that you're living in right now and imagine the implications. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, Paul says, love is the fulfillment of the entire law. This isn't fluffy love. It's not love without truth. This isn't the sappy love of a best-selling novel or movie. Jesus is our model of love. He shows us. What sincere love looks like in his life, death, and resurrection. So again, let it ripple out into the everyday stuff of life right now. The debates that are raging. The issues that people are fighting about. The debates that are going on in churches and in the Christian community. The issues that people are fighting about. Just let these adjectives describing Jesus' love land and ripple. Selflessness. Sacrificial, inconvenient love, love that is not convenient for me, but because of love, I'm willing to endure inconvenience for you because this kind of love puts you first, your needs first, your concerns first. You see this, it's an other oriented love. Can you imagine how the situation might be different if you first was the starting point for discussions and even debates on masks or vaccines or fires or jobs or whatever? Can you imagine how it might be different if we came in a posture of, you know what? I'm called to love, so I'm putting you first. And because I'm putting you first, This is the path I will choose, even if it's inconvenient for me, because love is sometimes inconvenienced. In the city of Corinth, another uh, church that Paul wrote to, they had this thing going through there where people were caught up in this idea of freedom. They were caught up in this idea that because they were Christian, they were free to do whatever they want because grace covered it no matter what. So this idea of freedom in Christ and the right to do whatever they wanted, this kind of aura had filled the environment in the church at Corinth. So Paul writes a letter, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 through 24. You have to hear this first part in quotes because it's in quotes. It's like Paul is quoting what he hears them saying. He says, I have the right to do anything, you say, This is Paul writing, but then Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. He goes back to quoting the Corinthians. I have the right to do anything. Then Paul says, but not everything is constructive. And then he says this, if there's any lack of clarity on what he's driving at, what he means, then he says this. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Now that just turns everything on its head. See, for the follower of Christ, rights are subordinate to love. Because I can exercise my rights, but in the process, harm my neighbor. And as a Christian, I am called by God to love my neighbor and to think of their interests first, not my interest and not my rights. My rights are subordinate to the call God has on me to love others And put them first. And that right there starts to undercut some of the major issues we're dealing with. So, last of all, a simple way to love. I don't know if this works for you, but it's something that's resonating with me. Just this idea of you first. How do you live this out? How do you walk this out? This concept of you first. I'd like us to think about all the pressure points bearing down on us every day. The stuff that we're facing. The points that divide. The places where there's tension, masks, wear, don't wear, on or off, vaccine, get one, don't get one, government protocols, school policies, church policies, all the opinions pounding on us from every direction. The news, social media, pastors who rant and rave about this stuff, the barrage of noise and ideas saying, do this, this is right you should do it that way. You shouldn't do it this way. Here's what... da blah, 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 blah. I just want us to sit in this for a second and I want us to think about the question as it relates to navigating all of these details. Okay? All this stuff. Here's what I'd like you to think about. Who is my discipler on these issues? Who do I look to? Who is my primary teacher on these things? Who do I follow really? And you know what would be a wonderful exercise to try? And I recognize in saying this, I'm going to offend everyone. So be it. But you know what would be a wonderful exercise for us to try for the next seven days? Here it is. Turn off CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News. Turn them off and leave them off for seven days And instead, and you might want to jot these down, read Romans 12, 9 through 21. And ask yourself as you read it, how do I live this out in a contentious world that is increasingly divided, and in a world or in a church where Christians are fighting with each other and harming their witness? How do I walk Romans 12, 9 through 21 out in my everyday life? Or... Read Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7 and simply ask yourself the question and ask God, how do I live out these principles in this tense world? Or read John chapter 13 and ask yourself the question, when I go to work, when I go to school, when I'm in my neighborhood, when I'm with other people and they don't agree with me or they don't see it my way, how do I live this out in this context based on what I read in John 13? Or read Philippians 2 and ask yourself the question, if this is the example of Jesus when he gave his life and he sacrificed for the sake of others, how do I live this out in everyday life right now in the midst of all the tension? Or read the book of 1 John and we've only scratched the surface because this theme of loving others is all over the Bible. And what I'm suggesting is is that we realign our attitude and response and reaction, so that it doesn't align with the news source we prefer, but rather it aligns with the scriptures we claim to believe in. And let our response and our reaction be shaped by what God says in the Bible versus what whomever says on the television. What would it look like if I navigated work School, the various errands I'm running, the various shortages that are all over the place, the slow restaurant service that we are going to get. What would it look like if I navigated all that in a loving posture and attitude that simply said, you first? I choose, because I'm a follower of Christ, to set aside my preferences. I choose to set aside what I want and what I want to do. I choose to even set aside my opinion and I choose to set aside my desires for your sake. Or to use Paul's words and to make them personal so they have a little more punch. Not that his words need help, but Romans 12.10. I choose to honor you and your desires and your wants above my own. Or Romans 15, this posture. You know what? I'm going to choose to act in a way that pleases you, for your good, to build you up. Or Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to choose to do nothing, or if we're going to be authentic about it, I'm going to choose to do less out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, and rather in humility. I value you above me. Not concerned about my own interests, but concerned about your interests. Can you imagine? I mean, if we could do this, even just the few of us who are here, if we could do this, we would ignite a revolution. If we could do this, I think we would actually see the curse's grip on this world loosen up just a bit. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it has context, that people throughout the centuries have turned to it to find wisdom, to find hope, to find guidance through difficult times. And I pray for us as a congregation here at Oak Hills. I pray for us as individuals and as a congregation that we, by the power of your spirit, will simply choose to put others ahead of ourselves. That our actions will reflect the mindset that we have been called to love and lay down our lives for the sake of others. I pray that you will help us to live this way and to discover as we do so that your way is, in fact, the best way, better than any other way, better than our way. And it is the way to abundance and to fullness and to peace. So through your spirit, help it to become true of us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for coming today. Thanks for tuning in online. And as you leave, may the grace... The peace, the power, and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thanks for coming.